Do you know what we're doing today? Yeah. Do you know what part? The last part. We're finishing a book today. Everyone give yourself a, a hand. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? We, we, this is the first time as a church we've completed an entire book of the Bible, going line by line, verse by verse, pulling out all of God's wisdom in it for us. And so today is, is the last section of the book of Ecclesiastes, and I'm really kind of bummed. It's been such a, it's one of my favorite books in the Bible. It's so pertinent for our time. I mean, it's probably anybody in any generation could say this is a timeless book, and that's what the book says about itself, but it's just been uh, so powerful, really, in my life, uh, and I hope is yours as well. But we're gonna, today we're going to end with a bang. Solomon is going to wrap it all up for us and tell us, after everything he's seen, everything he's done, everything he's experienced, he's going to finally answer the big question for us, which is, what is best in life? So if you would, uh, would you please stand, if you're able, one more time. This is for the reading of God's Word. We stand out of respect for the speaker, who is God. I'm just the reader. Uh, And before we do that, let's first go to him in prayer and ask that he would illuminate us to the text. So Lord, we praise you. We we hold your name up as holy and perfect and good, Lord. And we thank you for this book that you've given us, this book that is full, overflowing with wisdom, overflowing with knowledge, overflowing with your heart for us, and even in the midst of of this, following, of this fallen world telling us what is good, what is true, and what is beautiful. And so, Lord, as we end this book today, we pray that you would help us to see um, that this book is exactly in line with the rest of the Bible, that Solomon is encouraging us at the end of the day to do what the rest of the book does, which is trust God and his promises to us in Christ. And he promises to bless us. And so, Lord, we pray that you would give us your blessing today. We pray that you would give us minds to understand and hearts to obey your perfect word as you promise to beautify your afflicted ones. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Please be seated. A lot happened this week. I didn't read. Oh, I didn't read it yet. Oh my gosh! <laughs> See what I get for switching things around. I'm so sorry. Can we stand up again? Ah! Oh. Thought you were telling me that it was wrong in the bulletin. Okay. Let us now listen to God's inerrant word. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings, and they are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of the making of many books, there is no end. And much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment, with every secret thing, whether good or evil. This is the word of the Lord. 
Please be seated. <laughs> okay. It's a lot happened this week. <laughs> uh, this week marked the death of Hugh Hefner, the uh, the king of the Playboy uh, empire. And um, Rostu Thought, if you know who Rostu Thought is, he's a, he's a Roman Catholic commentator for the New York Times, generally a pretty solid guy. Uh, and he said, he wrote, a, he, wrote a, he wrote an obituary for, her, for, for Hugh in the New York Times this week, calling it, speaking ill of Hugh Hefner, an honest obituary for a wicked man. And I, I honestly, I can't really, I can't really read it. It's, he, went, he, he, like, he, got, he got too real. <laughs> In it, so it really would be inappropriate for me to read exactly what he said, even though he's usually a pretty conservative guy. But it starts like this: It says Hugh Hefner, gone to his reward at the age of 91, was a pornographer and a chauvinist who got rich on and consumerism and the exploitation of wiz- women, aged into a leering grotesque in a captain's hat, and died a pack rat in a decaying mansion amidst pathetic. Endless parties, basically what it says. And then from there it goes downhill to get to, to really start talking about, about Hugh Hefner. And I was reading this and thinking about it. I was reading the, you know, I was reading this end section of Ecclesiastes where really at the end, this is, this, you know, the last, end of the last chapter was really talking kind of an obituary for Solomon. It was talking about his death, his deathbed. He was coming into decay and death and his body was going back to the dust and his spirit was going back to the God who sent it. And then at this section of the text, a lot of people believe that this is an editor or someone who has come in and put the final word on Solomon's, on Solomon's story, summing up everything that he had just said. And really the story of Solomon is a, is a story of a guy who lived a life, or, or probably better to say Hugh Hefner lived a very similar life to Solomon for a lot of his years. They were both pursuing sex. They were both pursuing fame. They were both pursuing money. They were both pursuing power. All of it as a way to alleviate the pain they felt inside that they couldn't explain. And, 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 and both of them came to the end of that project in utter failure. Really, it's what the book of Ecclesiastes is all about. The big and the most important difference is the final conclusions that they reached, what happened at the end of their lives. As best we know, Hugh wrote it into the ground. If you had met him on his his deathbed and said, Hugh, what do you think? What's your wisdom that you would give us? I would imagine he would have said, man, it was great. But if you looked at him close, you would see there would be tears in his eyes. Probably didn't really believe it. But Solomon, on the other hand, had a very different conclusion as to what all those things were about and a very different conclusion because of those things, having experienced them about what life is really about, what is really meaningful, what is really beautiful. Uh, Solomon came to see all of that pursuit of fame, money, sex, power, the things that are culturally so celebrated, he ended up calling it vanity, which is a translation of vapor, smoke, the mist that you blow out of your mouth on a cold morning that's there and then instantly gone. 
It was essentially a metaphor for it being so temporary, it almost doesn't exist, and gone before you even knew it was there, having no lasting value. Uh, And at the end of his life, having seen that, he writes this whole book to teach us what the meaning of life is in full. What is a full life? What is blessing in life and in death? That's really what this whole book has been about. And so today he's going to give us his final conclusion, and it may not be what you think. Maybe it is, maybe it's not, but here's the big idea for this passage. This is the one thing that Solomon wants us to know, the Holy Spirit who superintended this and saved it for us, wants us to know, is that the words of God made beautiful, direct, and protect us in the path of life. The words of God made beautiful, direct, and protect us in the paths of life. Now let's look at that one part at a time. First one. First part. The words of God made beautiful. Look at verses 9 and 10. Now besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge. Weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care, the preacher sought to find words of delight and uprightly he wrote words of truth. I've talked about this before. It's no surprise. I'm not a big fan of bullhorn evangelism. Meaning, you know, if you, ever, if you go to any big function, usually around San Diego, we used to go, we go to, to uh, used to be called Christmas nights. Now it's, what is it called now? Holiday nights or, oh, holiday, December nights in the park. Um, and usually somewhere around there, there's people standing around with big lighted signs with the bullhorn uh, and their message is essentially, repent or go to hell. Uh, and I'm not a big fan of that. I think, I mean, I, not, it's not that what they're saying isn't true, but the way they're saying it. It's not being said in love. It's, not being, it's going around it the easy way. It's, 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 it's not even trying to engage in the hard work of building relationships. And so at the end of the day, it really drives people away, you know? If I come up to you and I say, hi, my name's Rob, and if you do not repent and accept the Lord Jesus Christ, you're going to hell, and so is all your family. Did I, did, was that true, what I said? Is it, yeah, it's true. Is there great care and delight in that? No, there's not. There's none of that. Is it upright? Meaning, is it upright? Is, are, my, are my motives correct? Maybe not. Maybe that's more about me trying to feel righteous than it is about caring about someone else to bring the message of the gospel to them. And what this first section tells us is that the preacher, it says, was a teacher of the people, meaning that he was interacting with people. He wasn't just writing books and shelling them out. He was, he was, he was collecting these sayings, putting these words together to interact with people and to teach them personally. Uh, he went to great lengths to study, to get it right in the first part. We're good at that. Our tradition is good at that. We go to great lengths to study so that we get it right. Uh, but then he says, really, that he goes to greater lengths to speak the truth in love. In other words, to present it in such a way that it can be heard. And what he's saying is it's not just what you say, but how you say it. And what this is, the big takeaway for us in this is that he says the, word, the words, 
really the words of God that he's talking about, the wisdom of God, biblical wisdom, are delightful, which is a promise. It's a promise to us that if we put care and love into it, we can speak the words of the Bible, we can speak words of truth in such a way that they come across as delightful, even as coming across as beautiful, as accessible, uh, as inviting, right? We don't always do that. Let me give you a negative example. <laughs> There's a, a church in Texas. Matt Chandler's the pastor, the famous pastor. He has just uh, decided, they've just decided to, they have a multi-site church, which means they got one big church with the, super, with the celebrity pastor and then they pipe in the video to all these other churches and those other churches don't have pastors. Those pastors don't know their people. Those pastors don't counsel their people. So they really don't have any idea how to preach into the lives of the people in their congregation because they just don't even really even know them. It's not really, it's a model that has a lot, has a lot in common with multiplex theaters and being able to bring more people in, but not as much in common with the way the Bible talks about worship and about preaching and about how to interact with God's people face-to-face. Some of what we talked about last week. And so Matt Chandler's thought through this and he decided to take all the churches and make them independent churches with their own pastors. And that was a great idea. So I threw up this post on Facebook and it said something like, you know, praise God. Uh, I hope that other pastors will have the same humility that Matt does and follow his lead. Right? Harmless enough, right? Liz is catching it. No, it wasn't. You know why? Because I got, a, uh, I got an email a couple days later um, from someone who was very close to me who I care about very much, who happens to go to a multi-site church, and she was very offended by what I said. By doing it like that, what did I do? I thought I was, you know, just kind of throwing it out there as a praise, but what I was really, what I was doing was what? I was doing it without any dialogue. I was doing it without any explanation. I was doing it without any personal relationship. I was doing it without any of the hard work of like coming face to face where she was at and saying, here's what you know, here's what the Bible says and why, why I think it's more beautiful. I'd forgo- I, I ditched all of that to throw it up there. And so you know what I did? This is so awful. <laughs> I did social media bullhorn evangelism. I totally, I totally did. <sighs> and that does not win hearts make you feel better, make you feel special, make us feel special, but it doesn't win any hearts. You can win arguments and lose people. Better examples are Solomon. For, uh, for example, you know, he, the way he uses words, it's so beautiful throughout the text. He says, you know, he doesn't just say church community is important. He says a threefold cord is not quickly broken. He puts out these beautiful pictures for us to, to think about and contemplate. He doesn't just come out, you know, and say, you know, hit, hit you with um, condemnation, saying money and pleasure will just let you down and leave you empty. Shame on you. Instead, he says, like, better is a handful of quietness than two handfuls of toil and striving after wind. And he leaves you with that picture. What does it look like to strive after wind? 
And I think about that. I, I think about a guy literally trying to chase the wind and catch it. <laughs> it's foolishness. But it's pretty much what we do. If what we're chasing is emptiness, we're doing the same thing. Paul, New Testament, same principle. He says that he meets people where they were and he did it at his own expense. He said, I, I have become all things to all people so that by all means I might save some and I do it for the sake of the gospel. Meaning he made himself uncomfortable and he went to places where he could meet people where they were and talk to them and bring them truth in a way that was understandable and beautiful. And Jesus really exemplifies this whole principle of getting low even as God, presenting truth and humility and presenting it as a servant. He says, and we read this last week in the gospel reading, come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden from following the ways of the world and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. The big takeaway, this first part, we see Solomon, the teacher of the people. His desire is to bring truth, which brings life. And in the way he does it is by studies hard. And then he, studied, then he works even harder to make what he wants to teach people accessible, beautiful, and delightful. And I think that we, we come, when we do this, sometimes our tendency, because of a lot of things, sometimes we just, we have insecurities that cause us to want to, uh, you know, it, our insecurity and our wish for, for recognition and our wish to be better than other people, our sinful desires to be better than other people can grab on to just about anything that's in front of us in the communities that we're in. And we can even grab on to good theology. We can grab on to, uh, you know, solid teaching. We can grab on to even good biblical theology and use that instead of a, as a way to come into people's lives with beauty like I did on Facebook instead of doing instead of coming into people's lives with it as a beautiful thing in lowliness we show up wanting to be masters rather than servants the great analogy is is the police versus the paramedics right the police something happens an accident happens the police come they want to find out who's at fault and, pers- and, and prosecute them and how often is that how we do it, right? We're at a Bible study, we're at a small group, we're in, you know, eating somewhere, someone, you know, someone makes one theological misstep and, we, and people jump on them to correct them. And, 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 and it just shuts, the whole room just, just shuts down because of it, right? But the paramedics, the paramedics come, they don't care who's at fault, they just want to see who's hurt and they want to patch them up and make things better, and that's what we need, man. We don't need to be the reformed secret police out there waiting for anyone to make a small mistake so we can jump all over them. We need to not be masters. We need to be servants so that we can come as the reformed paramedics and come in as servants and say, how can we help? How can we be a blessing? How can we present the beauty of things to a hurting world? So the question we ask ourselves when we come into situations where we're going to present the word of God, good question to ask, am I trying to be a master right now or am I trying to be like Jesus and be a servant? Be a servant. And what happens when we do that? What's the effect? 
of the words of God made beautiful, the effects, point two, is the words of God made beautiful, they direct and protect us. They direct and protect us. Look at verses 11 and 12. The words of the wise are like goads and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. And they are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of the making of books there is no end. And of much study there is weariness of flesh. Can you recoil against that? Anybody else recoil against that last line? I mean, that's, a, that's an off, that's, those are fighting words to a Presbyterian, isn't it? The making of many books, that's what we do. We make books, we write books, and then we write some more books. And then we pick out one word of the Bible, and we have 15 guys writing 15 different books explaining why that word means a different nuanced thing in the context. And then we respond with 15 more books on top of that. That's what we do. I don't think that's what he's exactly saying, so it doesn't freaks us out at first. But listen, this is what he's saying. He gives us, he gives us two images and a warning in this. Two images and a warning. The first image is the image of a goad. You know what a goad is? A goad is basically a stick with a nail stuck through it that you use to drive cattle to keep them on the path. Now, nobody likes the goad, but in my life, I can think of a hundred times when the goad was exactly what I needed. And it says that God's word presented beautifully can serve in that way to keep us to keep us on the safe path when there's cliffs all around us so we could easily fall off. Um, Paul, you know, Paul, on one hand, Paul says in, uh, in Acts 26 when he's recounting the story about him, Jesus met him on the road to Emmaus and he was converted. He said to Paul, it's hard for you to kick against the goads, which is this amazing statement. Saying, he's really saying that Jesus is saying that Paul had been in the midst of effectual calling. God was calling him and drawing him in, even through all you know, that we know of him, even through the stoning of Stephen, even through his persecution of Christians, even though he was out seeking these people's lives. All through that, God was, Holy Spirit was calling him, drawing him, and Jesus is saying, hard for you to kick against those goads, Paul. And now it's time. You're in. And he was converted. Goads can also keep us and bring us back when we wander off. There was a friend of mine, I had a friend that left the church to pursue all the empty promises of the world, to pursue his own sexuality. For years he left and did exactly what he wanted to do. And he came back years and years later. And I asked him, I said, why, why did, what brought you back? What brought you back? And he was like, you know, he was like, through it all, through all the parties, through all the clubs, through all the bathhouses, throughout all the drugs, throughout all the sex. He's like, I could never get the hymns out of my head. He could never get the hymns out of his head. The hymns that spoke about Jesus and his salvation and his free gift of life to us and the offer of beauty and life within the parameters that God has set. The goad in that man's life was the gospel. The beauty and the offer of the gospel of Christ offered to him. He could never, ever get that out of his head. And God used that as a goad to eventually bring him back into the safety of the fold and flourish 
second uh, image is the image of nails firmly fixed. It's a picture of, like, of nails that are firmly fixed in something that can hold you up. If you know anything about rock climbing, when you do giant face walls, it takes more than a day, well, for most people, right? Not so much anymore, but for a lot of people, it takes more than a day. And so midway up those, wall, those rock climbs, if you see pictures of them, they'll, they have a, there's a picture and there'll be a platform, you know, four by six platform or three by six platform, and all their gear is on it. They're sleeping bags, they have a little tent, their camp stove, their backpacks, their ropes, their climbing gear. And if you look at the pictures closely, you see that they are 2,000, 3,000 feet off the ground, and that platform is connected to the rock face by two or three of these bolts or these nails that are shoved into the rock. Everything, their lives, their safety, all their stuff is hanging off of this bolt. This single bolt or double bolt that's in the face of the rock. And that's the picture. That's the picture for us. The words of God, the collected sayings, the wisdom of God that's being given to us are like the strength of those anchors. The anchors are really the counterintuitive wisdom of the Bible, us resting our hope and trusting in and living in the reality of the fact that God is creator, that we're not autonomous, that we are his creatures made in his image, that happiness is found in honoring God, that happiness is found in giving him thanks and worshiping him and praising him, that joy is a byproduct of service, that we are predisposed to do uh, the opposite of, of, of seeking fulfillment in temporary things. And that temporary things only bring temporary happiness, but lasting happiness comes from faithfulness and service in God and trusting in the promises of God. Those, those are the nails that we fix in that, in that rock phase. If we tie our platform to these things, we're safe. And the warning is, the warning is if we seek to find safety or satisfaction beyond these nails firmly fixed into the solid rock, it will end in either disaster or dismay. It's not just the nails that have to be solid. It's what you nail it into that has to be solid too. Maybe you heard this week in Yosemite, El Capitan, one of the biggest rock walls that people climb, there was a section of rock that sheared off the wall that was about the size of a 13-story apartment building. 130 feet tall, 65 feet wide, about 10 feet thick, maybe half that, that size of an apartment building, just broke off the wall and fell down. 1,000 feet. Granite, rubble, smoke went all the way across the road in the valley, went through somebody's car windshield, knocked him in the head. Two people, uh, actually earlier in the week, there was a smaller rock side. Two people were killed. But can you imagine, say your anchors are fixed solidly in that sheet of rock on that day. And that sheet of rock is materialism. That sheet of rock is sensuality. That sheet of rock is hedonism. That sheet of rock is personal pride and, and, and self-actualization and trust in yourself and your own goodness. doesn't matter how firmly those nails are set. If it's not set in the right thing, it's going to eventually, what Solomon is telling us is that one day, someday, 
sooner or later, that rock is going to shear off and fall with you and your platform of your life and everything in it and end in total destruction. What he's saying is really that the rock is Christ. We can nail our nails and fix our lives into a lot of different things and they will all disappoint us. The only thing that has the structure, the solidness, the ability to save us supernaturally and eternally is Jesus. And so he's saying, be careful what you nail your nails into. But he says it can also, if we seek things beyond these firmly fixed nails, things beyond biblical wisdom, things beyond Jesus as our salvation, we could end up in dismay. And that's really the truth of our culture today. We have disregarded and, and eliminated divine revelation as the source of knowledge. And, and, and the history of our people, the history of Western people, is going from one philosophical idea to the next, to the next, to the next, to the next. Oh, this is true. No, this is true. No, this is true. No, this is how we know truth. No, this is how we know truth until we've gotten to the point now where we've, even, we've abandoned even the idea that a, no, a truth can be knowable. Once we've gotten rid of any objective source or any overarching God to anchor what is real and what is not real, what is true and what is not true, we've eliminated that and now it's just everybody's opinion. And nobody's opinion is any better than the next. And so we don't even know what truth is. And that has even now gone into literature and, and, and how we think and how we write, how we read, so that even texts don't have any meaning. What do you do? Where do you go when you reach the point in culture and society where we disbelieve that truth can be known and we even disbelieve that, we can, that there's any inherent or objective truth in, even in books or in texts or in any knowledge? Where do you go from there? How do you even hold a society together like that? Answer, we're not. We are not holding our society together. It ends in dismay. Or what Solomon would say, weariness of flesh. And so the words of God made beautiful, they give us safety, security. They give us direction on the path. They give us a sure and certain anchor in, 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 in security in within the safe boundaries of reality. And in so doing, it protects us in the paths of life. Third point. Third point. The words of God made beautiful, direct, and protect us in the path of life. Look at verse 13 and 14. The end of the matter. Here's his, Solomon's final word. After everything he's told us. The end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Now some people want to say, who study this book, they want to say that at this point right here, someone comes in 
some outside editor uh, comes in and ends it in, in a way that is in total opposition to the rest of the book. The whole, they say, the whole rest of the book is all about how life sucks, there's no God, and then you die, and then at the end, some editor comes in and says, no, this is what it means, trust God, obey his commandments. Uh, someone, in other words, came along and orthodoxed the books by adding this last lines onto the book. Fear God, keep his commandments, i.e., just shut up and follow the rules, that's your duty. People think that about this book, which is just insane. When you read through it, it's over and over again. He's talking about God. He's talking about fear God, but we've talked about what that means, trusting God, believing in him, that he is wise and smart and powerful and able to direct our lives and has our good uh, in mind. And and, he says in this section that all of this wisdom comes from the one shepherd. Uh, So... Is that what's happening here? Is this some, uh, some editor that's come on and orthodoxed the last two lines of the book? Is that what Solomon, is that what this means? I don't think so. How do we know? Well, let's remember who's telling us this story. This is at the end of Solomon telling us all of his life experience. And Solomon was wise, partly, because he had more than enough money and power and opportunity to try everything else. He got to be, he's like the wise guy from like, uh, you know, from experience, from the, the process of elimination. No, that doesn't work. No, that's not it. Eh, that's not going to work. Ooh, that's definitely not it. Man, that sucked. I'm just as empty as I was before. I actually feel a lot worse now. And he has written all those things to us. And remember, this is, This is Solomon on his deathbed. Again, chapters 11, 12 is really a presentation of his eulogy. The body falling into disrepair. Death approaching like a storm. The senses failing, eyesight, hands, teeth falling out, hair falling out, turning white. And then eventually he dies. The body goes back to the dust. Spirit goes back to the earth. And on his deathbed, Solomon is giving us this wisdom. And we get to sit by his side on his deathbed and hear what he says to us, you know? And he would say, he would say, look, I know you think that having a lot of money is going to make you happy, but it's not. I had more money than anybody could ever imagine. It didn't make me happy. Some of you think that by following your heart in the kind of sexual fulfillment that you believe is necessary for you to live a full life is going to make you happy. And he says, you know what? I had more sex than anybody on the face of the earth. I had more sex than Hugh Hefner times 10. And I'm telling you, at the end of that, is empty. It's sadness. It's suffering. It's pain. He says, some of you think that having the perfect house and the perfect life is going to make you happy. I built mansions and parks. I built, I planted forests as my front yard. It didn't make me happy. Some of you think you can be well known and respected. It's going to make you happy. People came to see me from all over the face of the earth. It was exciting at first, but then it kind of wore off, and I was not happy. 
Some of you think that being smarter than everybody else is going to make you feel safe. But it's not. It's always somebody smarter and they could show up any minute and wreck your kingdom. Some of you might think that getting revenge is going to make you feel better. Solomon would say, I don't even want to count how many people I killed. And it made me feel worse. He would say to us, Oh, do you think, oh, American, that being totally free to follow your heart will make you happy? And then he'd motion us in for his last dying words and he'd say, You know, do you know what makes you happy? You're not going to believe it. Fear God and keep his commandments. That's what makes you happy. He's not saying shut up and obey the rules. He's saying God designed us. God made us. God made us to worship him. God made us to enjoy the beautiful things that he's given us within the safe boundaries of his law that he's given us to enjoy life. He's like, look, I tried it. I did it. I did that. I did it. And it sucked. But I got to the end of it and I realized God loves you. That's why he's given us his law to bless us. And you know the best part about this all is? The best part for us is this, is that the law is given for our blessing in life. It shows us how to love God, how to love other people, and out of that flow blessing for us. But the best part of this for us in the New Testament, and for Solomon too, is that we get to do that completely free of the motivation of fear, completely free of the motivation of, I better do this or else, completely free of the motivation of, I have to do this or God's not going to love me. How do we know that? He says, because all of this wisdom was given by the one shepherd. Now, who can tell me who the one shepherd is? Sunday school answer? Amen. How do we know? Ezekiel twice says the one shepherd is Yahweh, God. And John chapter 10, Jesus identifies himself as the one shepherd from those Ezekiel passages. He says, I am the one shepherd. I am God incarnate. I have come to give you wisdom and to live out the law, to give you freedom. And so on the cross, this fear of judgment, this last line, you could read this last line, of this passage and freak out for God will bring every deed into judgment over every secret thing whether good or evil yes that's true but for us as Christians the good news of it is that when that happens to us the end of that story is acquittal we're free from it we're vindicated part of the secret things is that we have trusted our lives to Jesus the secret things that we, that we, is that we've come before God in transparency and confessed our sins. And that when Jesus went to the cross, he made a new covenant with us, a new covenant in his blood, which paid for all our sins. 
So we know this is the beautiful part. This is what differentiates Hugh Hefner on his deathbed from Solomon on his deathbed. Hugh Hefner wrote it into the ground. But Solomon at the end of the day said, I trust in the good shepherd. Fear of the Lord is really very synonymous with faith. Fear means to have reverence and awe for God, to believe that he's the creator, that we are his creatures, to trust in his promises and in his word that they're good and for our benefit. Very, very synonymous with a New Testament understanding of faith. Faith is to trust in God, to trust in his promises, to believe that Jesus has paid for our sin, that Jesus has given us our salvation. And out of that, out of the fullness of our hearts, out of the love and gratitude that we have for Christ, then we seek to, to keep his commandments. Out of love at first, but then eventually out of a sense of blessing as we see that it is God's blessing to us, his life that he is giving us now, and the promise of life that we have in Christ forever. Amen? Father, we thank you for the beauty of your word. Lord, we thank you that you would go through, you would, you would care about us enough, Lord, to write an entire book about how badly the world sucks and how hard life is under the curse so that we would know where we are, that we are under the curse. We are in a fallen world. The righteous don't always prosper. The wicked aren't always punished that we can see, but we know that this is by your design. And though it's hard, you're pulling good out of it. And you bring wisdom and blessing and peace out of it. And your promise is on us. Your promise is on us, even here in the end of this book, that you have us. We are protected. That your life is within us. That we are clothed in the beauty and the, and the righteousness of Jesus. That you have accepted us as perfect as pure, as righteous, that we now stand in your presence, that we have no need to run, but we can come before you, even in our sin, asking forgiveness, knowing you will grant forgiveness to us over and over and over again, knowing that your spirit through the commandments is creating and working life into us and creating us to be springs of living water in the middle of deserts. And so Lord, we pray for this desert and for all of us that you would make us bubble over with living water and life so that we might be blessed to see a thousand people come to faith in your name through this church. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.